This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Are we finally seeing the end of masks? Well, that's what the CDC is saying. The center announced yesterday that fully vaccinated people are now no longer required to wear masks both indoors and outdoors. Here is President Biden. He was addressing the new guidelines and updates at the White House. It's a good day for the country. We aren't done yet. We're still losing too many Americans because we still have too many unvaccinated people. Look, we've gotten this far. Please protect yourself until you get to the finish line. Meanwhile, Illinois officially enters the bridge phase today. That means we're in between phase four and phase five in the state reopening plan, and we're one step closer to being fully open. As the country and our state continue to loosen COVID-19 restrictions, the end to this long journey is nearly in sight. But when will we finally get back to normal? And how do we get there? Well, to help us answer those questions and much more is infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina from the DuPage Medical Group. Hi, Dr. Teramina. Welcome back. Hi, Sasha. Last week, the CDC said that masks are no longer required outdoors for fully vaccinated people. And now they're saying those people don't even have to wear masks indoors or even socially distanced. So what are your thoughts about this? So it's interesting that it kind of came, there were whispers of an update like this coming soon. And then it just came like a tidal wave yesterday afternoon where we were like, whoa, 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 we're not ready quite yet to uh, process all this information and how this is going to look. It is very exciting news. It's incredibly encouraging. And we are getting so close to feeling more normal. Um, I do think there's definitely a component of, of having to have uh, increased motivation for people to continue to get vaccinated because that's really what's going to drive this to the finish line. And with the available data we have, which is not perfect, but with the available data that we have, we know that fully vaccinated individuals are extremely unlikely to spread this virus and extremely unlikely to become ill. So taking that mask off is something that we can slowly start moving moving towards. And it's a very exciting update for all of us. So doctor, you don't think we're moving too fast? It's because we don't exactly have a roadmap as to what this is going to look like. And while we have this guidance from the CDC, we do have room for uh, different states and different counties and different cities, you know, on that level to really look at the numbers, the transmission, the data in their area. And individual private-owned entities still have the ability to make decisions for their own employees and to make decisions for their own um, uh, workspaces. So, um, you know, certainly those that are kind of exempt from this removing of the mask is, is going to be those of us in healthcare for sure. And anyone riding public transportation or planes or anything like that, where we're going to be in close contact with other individuals and, you know, in my line of work, close contact with patients. So mask wearing will not change in my day to day. But it'll be interesting to see how soon we're going to walk into the grocery store to see folks uh, with a more of a mask optional approach. 
Right. So if we have this, I'm trying to picture this world now with a bunch of people walking around without masks. What are the possibilities and the risks then of us seeing a surge in cases and infections? It is possible, um, but it's not probable. And that's part of the reason why we're able to cautiously move towards this. While we don't have everyone vaccinated, we statistically are moving towards having enough vaccinated to make those major surges and the concept of overwhelming the system unlikely at this point. Um, so that's part of the reason why the consensus has become that it's not perfect, but we need to continue to motivate people to get vaccinated so we can move past this. And a, a very strong motivator is knowing that the masks are coming off, you know, after vaccines. And we are um, putting ourselves as fully vaccinated individuals into a very, very low risk group. We're also accepting as a society that there's going to be cases and unfortunately there's going to be deaths. Um, but this is sort of the crossroads we're at where we look at those numbers and we have every ability to protect ourselves uh, using available vaccines uh, and folks that, that uh, choose to continue to hold out, um, they are accepting the risk. All right, let's let's hear now from a caller. We've got Jason on the line in Hoffman Estates. Hi, Jason. What's your question for the doctor? Hi, doctor. Thank you for taking my question. My question is in regards to an allergic reaction that I'm having with the vaccination. I do have an autoimmune issue and my symptoms are hives. My question is, is there any information as to how long the vaccine will last in my system and how long these symptoms will um, continue? Because at this point, my doctors are monitoring me and I'm on four different antihistamines and have an EpiPen um, because the hives do get severe. Um, and I have to consistently take that. And so that was my question. Is there a date range where the vaccine will just kind of dwindle and I don't have to worry about these severe interactions? Thanks, Jason. Oh, boy. Jason, that's a, a very individualized question for you, and I'm glad your physicians are monitoring you closely. You know, when it comes to an adverse reaction causing hives or causing, you know, that type of reaction, there are waves, which is why you often have to stay on antihistamines for a while because uh, it could seem to get better and then get worse again and then get better and then get worse again, and everyone's timeline is truly individualized. Someone that's had a significant adverse reaction to a single dose of vaccine like that absolutely should be working with their allergist to try and uh, temporize any side effects and to make a determination if and when it's safe and reasonable to receive a second dose of vaccine in a two-dose series. So it sounds like uh, you're kind of mucking through here and hopefully slowly but surely over time. And I don't know that timeline specific for each individual. This will continue to get better for you. Doctor, I'm going to squeeze in a question we just got by email. It's from Jennifer in Andersonville. Um, couple of questions. She says she recently read that drinking alcohol after receiving the vaccine could reduce the efficacy of the vaccine. So I guess we want the, the, the answer to that, whether that's true. And today she says uh, she read that waiting longer to take the second dose improved the vaccine efficacy substantially. What do you say? So, Jennifer, a couple of things. Um, you know, we have the vaccine that's available in Russia, the Sputnik vaccine, which does have some indication to withhold uh, drinking alcohol or consuming alcohol after being vaccinated for a short period of time. None of the vaccines that are approved in the U.S. currently come with that recommendation. Certainly, everything should be uh, done in moderation. And after being vaccinated for the several days afterwards, certainly you may not feel like consuming alcohol during that period of time. So I would encourage 
encourage uh, listening to your body on that regard. Um, when it comes to delaying the second dose of vaccine, we are still um, following guidance based on uh, where these vaccines were tested timeline-wise. We do know that we can give those second doses uh, reliably up to six weeks later. And anecdotally, uh, for individuals that had to miss their second dose, even within those 42 days, we are seeing really good antibody responses. I don't think we have enough data just yet to show that we have a better antibody response. And at this time, it's still going to be encouraged to really try to stick to that 21 or 28-day interval that was originally studied and is preferred at this time. Well, tell us more about the antibody response when it comes to kids, right? The CDC approved Pfizer for 12 to 15-year-olds. That started yesterday uh, in Chicago. Various sites and pharmacies started giving out the shot to that age group. What do we know so far, doctor, on the protection that it has for these younger age groups? Uh, these kids did very, very well in uh, the placebo-controlled trials, which led to this uh, getting emergency use authorization for our adolescents. So we look at side effects um, pretty much on par with what adults experience, sore arm being the most common, uh, some headaches as well in these younger kids. Uh, but otherwise, they are handling it very, very well. And the initial data that was presented to uh, the FDA demonstrated that uh, nearly 100% efficacy in preventing COVID and in uh, preventing hospitalization. So these kids already in a very low risk group with the benefit of vaccine are going to be uh, really setting themselves up to have a great summer ahead and get back to school in a very uh, much more normal feel in the fall. So if kids are so much less prone to spreading this virus, why is it still so important to get them the shot? That's a good question. So I, in the way I typically answer it is every single every single infection instance, whether it's in a kid, in a, in a teen, in an adult, is an opportunity for that virus to mutate. So while a kid may have a very mild course of illness, first of all, there are certainly kids and teens that have passed away from this. And even though that number is relatively low, the number of deaths in this age group is relatively low regardless. And we've had enough deaths due to COVID in adolescence to make COVID being one of the top 10 causes of death in this age group in our country, which is just astounding at this point. So every chance that this virus has to mutate becomes an opportunity for this virus to be theoretically spread to the next individual, which could be your loved one who is elderly and vaccinated. And this mutation may eventually become something that can overcome the vaccine status. So in order to stop this vicious cycle, we all have to do our parts. Those of us at high risk, those of us at low risk, and every single vaccine in every single available arm is going to be part of what stops that cycle of mutations, which if they flourish, will eventually uh, potentially overcome our vaccinated status. Let's hear from a couple callers. Aaron's on the line from Lakeview. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is about long-haul COVID. So even if you're vaccinated, there's still a chance that you can get COVID. Um, and what are, I'm curious to know, like, what are the, what's the likelihood of developing, like, the long-haul COVID symptoms once you've been vaccinated? 
that's an excellent question and is one that we are still learning about. It is a question I have been asked before. Um, as we know, about one third of individuals who develop those COVID long hauler symptoms who have not been vaccinated do benefit from vaccine. So having those neutralizing spike uh, antibodies in your system do uh, does seem to help individuals overcome the, that long hauler state about 33% of the time. When it comes to getting COVID after being fully vaccinated, there's a very, very low instance of this. We're looking at, you know, maybe a, a less than 10% chance per sh for sure, but in some studies as low as a 1% chance or less of getting COVID after being fully vaccinated. We do not yet know of those folks who will be likely to uh, go on to have long hauler symptoms. The theoretical thought process is that you will be less likely to do so as your body already has some neutralizing antibodies and becoming infected with COVID after being vaccinated, you should have a much more milder course. And the hope would be that that would limit some of the potential long hauler side effects. Let's talk now with Shelly in Forest Park. Hi, Shelly. What's your question for the Hi, doctor? Good, yeah, good morning. Thank you. Uh, my question regards to, um, like, family gatherings. When you have adults who are all fully vaccinated, but the young kids are not, and one of the adults is going to be starting immunosuppressant drugs for, like, an inflammatory condition, what is that going to look like? We seem to get that one a lot, doctor. Adults who are vaccinated and little kids who are not. Yeah, Shelly, we are we're moving towards some really great weather. And when it comes to interacting in mixed crowds of vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, especially when it comes to the kids being unvaccinated, outdoors is going to be preferred. Um, obviously, there's going to be a great distribution of air and distribution of droplets. Anyone who's sick and, and not feeling well should obviously take a pass, especially if there's going to be kids interacting with a potentially immunocompromised adult. With all adults being vaccinated, Adults are generally the ones that are able to spread this virus more efficiently and more um, readily. So I think that the scenario you present with vaccinated adults and kids that are not yet eligible for vaccine, if those kids are healthy and well, we should be at a time where they can interact with one another and we can interact with those children, especially outdoors. If there is a large number of individuals or it's an indoor space, mask wearing when social distancing cannot be maintained is still going to be highly encouraged. Remind us, doctor, when can we see kids under 12 be approved? Oh, gosh, we're hoping for September, October. So we, we should get uh, that data uh, early fall uh, with a very, very strong possibility that our two to two to 12 or two to 11 year olds will be able to have the opportunity to be fully vaccinated by the holidays this year. Let's hear now from Ian in Lincoln Square. Hi, Ian. Hi there. I love the show. Uh, Thank you. My question is the the elephant in the room, no pun intended, but with the politicization of vaccine passports and whatnot, and, you know, it looks like it's not going to be adopted nationwide or anything, how are we supposed to know if the person next to me who took their mask off actually got vaccinated or not? Great question. It's one I thought that, about this morning, Ian. <laughs> Ian, that is Literally. the elephant in the room. And that's and, and unfortunately, the way things go, we are very much concerned that the exact folks that are going to be the first to rip their masks off are going to be the unvaccinated ones. And, and the reality is, is statistically, we have to sort of be prepared for that because they're also going to be the ones that are more likely to get sick. Um, fortunately, they are going to be less likely to 
to be able to infect someone that's fully vaccinated. So our protection remains to, to remain fully vaccinated ourselves and even as fully vaccinated individuals to still strongly consider mask wearing uh, as an additional layer of some protection, especially in crowded scenarios where there might be a chance that you could be exposed to someone who's very virulent. Um, I don't know to what extent we are going to have to show proof uh, when we decide to be unmasked in public spaces. And I don't know to what extent private entities are going to be able to ask that as it does become a, a matter of personal health information. So this is where we end up with um, the legality and also the you know social impact we have to have. You know, there may be ways to kind of work around um, that sort of personal HIPAA uh, consent yeah. uh, when it becomes a matter of public health. Do you think we need a vaccine app? I'm in favor of them. I don't know exactly how they're going to be used um, as, as truly something that is uh, eliminating somebody from going from point A to point B, but to the extent that it can be used to uh, more readily accept people into a space, I think is great. Um, I would think that there would be a tremendous amount of reassurance if you know that all folks in a particular setting uh, have uh, met screening, but I don't know how they're going to be able to keep people who haven't been vaccinated or do not have that app outside of these venues. That remains to be seen. Doctor, let's hear now from Sarah in Wrigleyville. Hi, Sarah, what's your question? Uh, Dr. Termina, my question is about safety of a fully vaccinated person in international travel, especially to countries that vaccination has not, uh, is not widespread and using vaccines that are not uh, internationally known to be effective, um, like they call it Chinese or Russian vaccination. So um, especially with this new recommendation by CDC that even indoor masking is not uh, needed. So how safe is this type of uh, traveling at this point? Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, you know, I think I would not consider traveling internationally at this point if I was not fully vaccinated. So that's the first step. If you're fully vaccinated and otherwise healthy and have a need or desire to travel internationally, certainly we still are going to have requirements to have mask wearing on the plane when not eating or drinking. And when we arrive uh, in the other country, we have to be very mindful of exactly what is going on in that country and what you're going to be doing there. Are you going to be uh, staying with a family member and just in their house and they've been uh, respecting all available precautions and not traveling and not going into crowded places? Or are you specifically going for a large wedding or a large event where there is more likely going to be exposures? What worries me about traveling abroad to some of these locations is the potential that some of the circulating virus can be more virulent and, and more of these um, uh, mutation strains that you could potentially be more susceptible to. So traveling is reasonable if you're fully vaccinated, but be prepared to kind of keep yourself away from crowds, maintain social distancing, and even though you're fully vaccinated, wearing a mask abroad is going to be most reasonable. Let's touch on schools for, for a moment, doctor. Um, they're getting ready to welcome back students in the fall. Universities like Northwestern, they're requiring students be fully vaccinated in order to come back. Um, what should institutions look out for other than mandating vaccinations? in order to keep everyone safe and to minimize the spread on campus? 
I think to the extent that you can have a, a near fully vaccinated faculty, staff, and student population, we are going to see a very little transmission of virus occurring on these campuses. Um, certainly, if there are um, on-campus events and parties and get-togethers where, you know, we can all remember the sorority and fraternity days of our college years where there was no social distancing whatsoever, um, that could become a, a very serious concern if there is uh, a cluster of folks that are not vaccinated. I'm in favor of some of these colleges moving toward vaccine requirements. This is not something that is unheard of. There are many, many vaccine requirements for college and for schools at all levels. And the one sort of um, stickler is the fact that the previous vaccines have all been FDA approved. So I will remind all listening that both Moderna and Pfizer meet all criteria for full FDA approval. Um, and that should likely be something that is granted in the months to come and, and will likely be in place place prior to the start of school in the fall. Um, and it's not even necessarily required at this point, again, because of public health emergency needs. Let's hear from Todd in Western Springs. Hi, Todd. What's your question for the doctor? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have another question about uh, immunocompromise and the vaccine. Um, I suffer from MS. I take uh, immunocompromising medication and I did take the J&J uh, &J vaccine uh, as the first one available. I know it's slightly less efficacious, uh, and also I know that my medications might make it even more so. Um, my question is about booster shots. Um, I know they're not readily available yet, but the vaccine seems to be getting more and more available in general. Would it be wise or silly for me to try and make an appointment to get a single dose with one of the, with maybe the uh, Moderna or Pfizer vaccine as a sort of booster to help boost me as we move into this time with people more on being unmasked and whatnot. Thanks, Todd. Todd, that's a great question, and it is one that I hear among our patient population quite commonly as well. I would encourage you to speak with your physician to see if they can go ahead and check your spike proteins to see if you indeed are showing that you have spike antibodies and have responded to that J&J &J vaccine. If you have not responded at all to that J&J &J vaccine and it has been two to four weeks since completing the vaccine, uh, there can be a case-by-case -case conversation about the potential use of a repeating a vaccine series with one of the other medications. This is not something that is standard. Uh, this is going to be very individualized on a case-by-case -case basis and by no means should anyone, regardless of their immune status, uh, seek additional vaccines uh, for any reason without speaking to their doctor about risks, benefits, and alternatives. Before we let you go, doctor, as you know, of course, India is still battling that devastating second wave of COVID. Uh, the World Health Organization identified the India COVID variant as a variant of concern. So what does that mean? Should we be concerned here? Well, the, the variant that's being seen in India is being seen here. We, we do have cases of it in the U.S., um, and cases of it are likely to continue to show themselves in the United States, especially with international travel and other things. What makes this variant different is that it, it's sort of a hybrid of uh, other variants that we've seen, or similar variants that we've seen. So there's more than one mutation point on the genome, which makes it potentially starting to show what could happen as we get variant as we get viral strains that can potentially overcome our vaccines. At this point, our available vaccines in the U.S. 
appear to be able to protect from this variant, but it is something we need to watch very, very closely because we are seeing live in front of us exactly what happens in a population that is not vaccinated when you have something as contagious and potentially deadly as, as a variant strain like this. That is infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina from the DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Teramina, thank you so much as always. Have a great weekend. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.